Thank you, Leslie and Paul. <clears throat> Good to see you all here today. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles and uh, once again turn to the book of Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter 23. And we're going to uh, we'll begin reading in verse 11, even though we covered that last week. Um, we'll read through the rest of the chapter. It's a continuation. You've noticed that this narrative um, has... Well, it's actually, Acts has been a remarkable unfolding of the beginning of the church. Paul, we've been talking about here for numbers of chapters. And he's uh, went from Paul the traveler or Paul the, the mission missionary to literally Paul the prisoner. And uh, this is kind of the beginning of that aspect. He will continue to be that all the way to the end of this book of Acts. Well, with that now, let's go to Acts chapter 23. We'll begin reading at verse 11, which is the night following the uproar, the uproar, the riot that took place in the Sanhedrin. And Jesus Christ himself appeared to him in verse 11. Let's begin there. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. When it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore you with the council signified to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, and we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. When Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand, went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for they lie in wait for him of them, more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, saying, uh, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. He called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. He wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews, and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. When I would have known the cause wherewith they accused him, I brought him forth into your, their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. When it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for this man, I sent straightway to thee, gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. And then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatrius, 
And on the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle. Who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. When the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. May God add a special blessing to reading of his word. Let's just pause for prayer before we begin our study together. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for gathering us here. Thank you, Father, for showing us even more clearly who you are through the word. We would ask that these moments are yours to do with us as you would please. That the Holy Spirit would totally and completely, 100%, be in charge, be the teacher exclusively. Father, we lean on the word. We lean on the spirit. We would ask that you take each one of these that are gathered today. And we would ask that you would meet their needs, in which you know before they do. You know their families. You know their situations. You know their struggles. And, Father, you know their blessings. But now, Father, we're here, surrounding the word. Bless us through it. Yes, these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, interesting passage of Scripture. It was fairly lengthy. Um, and there was something that was absent. <clears throat> do you know what it was? And there could be many things, but something that seems really rather odd as we're reading through the Bible, through the book of Acts, there was something that was missing. Now, not the absence of it, but the word, shall we say. And you're saying, what in the world are you talking about? It was a narrative, and it was engaging, wasn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on. Did you notice that neither Jesus, nor God, nor the Holy Spirit were mentioned in any way, shape, or form, by word. And yet, he's everywhere. <laughs> That's literally what we're going to talk a little bit about today, is how God works. He works through two ways. One of them is the one we prefer, because we get to the end of the month and we don't have any money. We need a miracle. <laughs> like, poof, there's money in the bank. Or you have a huge monster thing in front of you, and you need a miracle to make that go away or something to come in place and take care of it. We like miracles. Correct? You're smiling, and you're not. <laughs> yes, some of you are nodding. So that's one of the ways that God actually works. Now, Paul has actually been involved uh, in miracles. You know that he's been in jail. You know that there's been earthquakes. You know that there's been jail doors opened. You know that he's been miraculously... What do I want to say? Um, Rescued, literally, by a miracle. So he's seen it happen. Uh, but this one here is, a, and I've, you've, I've announced it so much you guys know, it's not even a secret anymore. There's a book in the Bible, a complete book, that has not God's name mentioned in any way, shape, or form. It's one I always encourage you to read, because it's interesting to see from the top to the bottom, there's a lot of events taking, and not God is mentioned. But this is really cool. Most of the time, the closest that God is to you is when you don't know He's the closest to you. Have you ever seen someone in this passage that we read of God being any closer to Paul than he possibly could have been? Not a chance. And that word that we would use is providence. And that book, which you already know, is what? Esther. Esther is a book that is filled with, jam-packed with, I mean, there's, there's evil, there's good, it's amazing, and nothing makes any sense. And yet, at the end, guess who wins? God. God has a way of getting his, his will done, and it is just these two ways. One is through miracle, or one is through providence. 
Um, this passage that we read is actually maybe as clear a passage about speaking of the providence of God of any I could point you to. It's amazing. Now, keeping in mind that verse 11 was actually word spoken, if you have a red letter version, which sometimes can be, I'm not saying you should, but sometimes it's nice to see Jesus' words. Jesus literally appeared to Paul the night of the Sanhedrin riot. By the way, what's Paul's record in visiting with people recently? It's disastrous, right? Riot here, riot there, riot everywhere. Everywhere where Paul goes, there's a riot. Do you think the poor man feels like he's a little bit hated and distrusted and disliked by his own Jews? As you've noticed, as this has been unfolded, there's over 40 men that have taken an oath to, to have a conspiracy that they will not eat or drink until they have killed Paul. That seems odd to me. What did Paul do? Well, he's so mean, he's so evil, he's so... Wait a minute. He talks about Jesus Christ coming, dying on a cross. You guys killed him, but if you actually trust in him, if you put your faith in him and receive his grace, you can be saved. Boy, that's terrible. And then he promises peace to those that accept Christ. Well, that's even worse. Is this crazy? They're going to kill Paul because of the message about love and peace. Hmm. Really? That's what it's about, right? Who's he killed? No one. Who's he maimed? No one. Who is he injured? No one. Probably the worst thing you could say about Paul is the fact when the high priest, I think it was in last week, wasn't it? Our study together, not last week, but when we were here together, talked about the fact that the high priest, it was an informal meeting. Paul more than likely did not even know the voice that said, strike that man with a fist across his mouth. And someone did. And Paul shouts across the room, the same to you, you whitewashed phony. And then someone said, you're going to revile the high priest? And Paul responded, I did not know he was the high priest. He did not apologize because that was a criminal action taken against Paul as an innocent citizen. That would be as far as you could possibly go for him to reach out not knowing what he had said to the high priest in anger. He was, he was human there, let me tell you. He was human. He let her rip. But go ahead. You want to take a full shot to the mouth of the fist? You may have a few things going through your mind that may not be stellar. What, what else would you say about Paul? Fully engaged in doing God's will. Fully engaged at every level. Jesus has come tonight before he said, I've got some things to tell you. You literally, buddy, are going to go to Rome. <laughs> I can just see Paul just, wow, I'm going to get there. Now, he didn't say how he was going to get there, but he's obvious at this point he's in prison. Things haven't went well. And yet, you know what? He's still promoting Jesus Christ. The top of the stairs and that. Um, Larry, maybe, maybe give us that. We're going to go to another map today. But maybe the temple, the, the picture of the, or the diagram of the temple would allow us again to see how Paul was dragged from the temple, the, the Gentile court. They were trying to kill him in the Gentile courtyard. All of the Jews. These are his fellow, this is family, people. This is Jews trying to kill him because he loved Jesus. The Antonian Fortress says they would have taken him up those stairway, up the stairway. He turns around, and this is all this is all review. He says in Greek, I'm sorry, yeah, in Greek to the to Claudius Lysias. Now let's let's check in with him because you saw him in our text today. Who is this guy? Who's Claudius Lysias? Yeah, he's 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 in charge. He's the Kiliarch, or the one in charge of a thousand men in that fortress right there. There's a thousand riot police, if you will, but in today's terms, they are there and they're, look what they get to watch over. They know where the riots happen in the place people worship because worshiping religious people are stupid. They fight. They want to kill people. In crazy, isn't it? By the way, they shouldn't do that. But you saw 
What, where do they put the fortress? Overseeing the temple. That's where the problems happen. Isn't that crazy? Look at religion today. Religion is really nothing more than a relationship with tradition, if it's truly religion. Traditions, you want to get in somebody's face, you want to get somebody, a cult or a religion fired up, go ahead and po poke your finger at a tradition. Boom! They are fired up. That's exactly what Paul did. That's exactly what he did. In fact, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. At any rate, top of the stairs, says in Greek to this Claudius Lysias, the man that's in charge, he literally, they have rescued Paul, carried them over his head, is what the text said, carried him up the stairs, and Paul says, could I speak to these people? I don't know about you. I'm not interested in speaking to these people. I'm gone. Like, get me out of here. And the guy says, you spoke in Greek. That's cool. Yeah, go ahead. So he turns around. He speaks in Aramaic. What? Who is this guy? He can do anything. And you know what happened? That was another riot. Got a riot in the temple. Got another riot when he says the word, the G word, Gentile. Poof, another riot. Oh, what do you think? How would you like to be Claudius right now? I don't even know what this guy did. I have nothing. But they want to kill him. So he says, okay, I got to figure it figured out. I'm going to go get the Sanhedrin. These are the Supreme Court. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. I'm going to keep saying that. Did you see who, the, now I, I'm jumping ahead. Sanhedrin shows up informally. There's a riot there. We got the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. Now, who, which family is the high priest from? The Sadducees. Now think of that. The high priests, the people that are leading the people, that are leading the temple, do not believe in resurrection. They do not believe in angels. They do not believe in afterlife. They do not believe in heaven. And these are the people leading the people. Ay, ay, ay. So when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you talk about put it in their face. And Paul went one step further. He said, not only did Jesus Christ rise from the dead, he is the Messiah. Wowzers. This place is on fire. <sighs> Three riots in less than three days. Paul that night, after that, is in his place of his abode, somewhere within the fortress to protect him. And Jesus appears and he says, don't worry about it, buddy. Good job. Way to, way to testify. Way to put my name out there to these people, even under adverse conditions. But guess what? You're going to be going to Rome. Whoa, right? And then for the next 12 through verse 35, there's not one mention of God. Not one single mention of his name. And yet, he's everywhere. I, I'm just looking across my, the crowd here today, taking a little bit of a gamble. Is there even one person that was born in Madison County in this group? Raise your hand if you were born in Madison County. One person. Okay. Do you see the level of providence? How did you get here? And I'm not talking today. How did you get here? <laughs> it's called providence. Now, there may be some miracles along the way. There may be health risks or uh, things that happened that literally you were snatched out of. I remember my mother, uh, a, a situation we don't really talk very much about even in our family, but she was ready to be operated on for breast cancer. And it was the, there was a delay. And, you know, my mother, what's going on here? Where are we going? <laughs> She's all in. She's all in. And the doctor said, we, we got to well, just, just, just hold on. We need to do another mammogram. More time takes come. He comes back and he says, I don't understand this. There's nothing there. 
And my mom said, well, I gotta go home. <laughs> okay, that was truly a miracle. And if you understand the, the situations, but there was more, there, this, is, this is what I'm trying to get at. Miracles are something that we grab a hold of because we like to see them. They're fun to talk about. The three guys in the furnace, four guys, Jesus Christ was with them. You know what? Jesus Christ is with you in providence, probably even more so than a miracle. <laughs> He's right there. And you want to see those guys. Nothing happened to them. Isn't that great? Daniel in the lion's den. That's a miracle. You don't, throw, you don't throw a man in hungry cats and get away with it. God closed your mouth. That's a miracle. But even more impressive to me is when God uses the natural supernaturally to accomplish what he wants done. That's literally what's happened right here. Providence. I mean, I, I'm actually, I never thought about that just before I came up here. That literally in this group of people right here, one person in this group was born in Madison County. And by the way, I think he took a trip away from Madison County for a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I quite a little bit, right? Back east and came back. <laughs> totally, totally. Do you see it? Is God leading? Absolutely. In fact, to me, the real miracle is how God uses providence. That's bigger than a miracle. And he says, describe it for me. You take Jesus Christ's walk, and remember this, Jesus Christ chose to die. He was not murdered. He was not killed. Jesus Christ was part of God's plan. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God says, I chose he, he chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Uh, that, but, but think of the providence. Each step that Jesus took, the responsibility on man's will, speaking of Judas Iscariot, perfect timing, perfect is quotes, he goes to the priests and he says, I will sell this guy out. Well, how much money can I get for him? What was that day? That was literally the day after Jesus had been crowned king. I'm not crowned, but walked, drove through on Monday of Passion Week, and the, the Hosanna and the branches were, I mean, he's like the deal. What are you going to do if you're king? The first thing Jesus does if you're king is you go to the heart of the problem, and that's the temple. You go into the temple, and you throw the bums out. You throw out all the commercialization. You show that they are evil. He didn't go to the Romans. Now, what would that do to the Judas Iscariots and all of those that wanted a new kingdom, drove them nuts. Judas Iscariot, right after that, said, I'm going to sell what I can get. This guy, what is he doing? I've been with him three years. We're going nowhere. For 30 pieces of silver, at just the right time, God used that providentially to bring his son on the road to crucifixion. That's the reason you guys are here today. It's because of what God did providentially in the life of his own very son. Hanging on a cross, what part of that is it? To me, it's a miracle that God would allow that to happen. He knew it before it even happened that men would sin. For us to be here is a small change. Isn't providence a bigger miracle? It's amazing. It's totally amazing. Now, a miracle, I don't want to diminish it in any way, but it's amazing how many of us want to see that happen. A miracle is to take something that breaks the natural zone of things, and it just poof, and it just like, it breaks that up, and then it goes back. Providence is taking the natural and supernaturally using it to maneuver God's will to be accomplished. And that's fantastic. And the more you dig into it, the more it's, it's amazing. I just look at my own life, how we took a trip to Miles City. Financially done, lost it all, high interest, early 80s. 
Literally, I had read numerous times in Genesis chapter 12 through 15 that God said to Abram, get thee out of thy country and I will take thee to a place to show thee. No maps, no time frame, no nothing. Goes 900 miles. As we drove from Livingston to Miles City, we had a hope that there was a realtor that had given us a name of a woman that needed a caretaker to take, a, take care of a ranch. That was when that verse was big and bold. We were going somewhere that God is taking us. We don't even know where we land. That's bigger than any miracle, isn't it? That's my point of this. God's not mentioned in his providence is even more miraculous when you think of how he's intricately working through the workings of wills of people, and he still gets it all done. This is a picture of that. Might be as good a one as I could tell you. Esther's a fantastic book. This is, this is, this is crazy. The next day, now let's dig in. Let's start digging in. Back to chapter 23 of Acts. We'll read verse 11 once again. The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Cheer up, Paul. Be encouraged. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, good job. Way to do that. So must you bear witness also at Rome. You're going to go to Rome, buddy. When it was day, that next morning, certain of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under a curse, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Oh, my word. That sounds serious. And there were more than 40. Why was there 40? What's wrong with just one? Why don't you just pick one, have a little drawing, and the short straw wins, he's got to take Paul out. Why would it be 40? More than, it's just not 40, it's more than 40. It's a big group. Probably had one of those secretive meetings like, anybody interested in getting rid of Paul? Whoa, they probably narrowed it down to a little over 40, right? Big group. Why would it be that? Well, if you, if you haven't noticed yet, on the three previous riots, they wanted to kill him each time. And every time the Romans took him away. Okay? So it's going to take a pretty good group. They got, but they got a plan. They've got just not just, you know, they're not 40 just going to mass. Because you know what? If those 40 guys are going to take on the Romans that live in the Antonian Fortress, they're going to lose. They're going to lose big time. These Romans are trained. You're, in fact, you're going to find how athletic they really are as we go on on their text. It takes 40. And they're in. They're all in. We're not going to eat or drink until we've killed this guy. Now, where would you go if you're going to unfold this plan? This plan obviously was done with those that hated Paul. This is the I hate Paul club. There's president, probably a couple presidents, in case one is sick during a meeting. Right? I mean, they, they hate him. Where would you go next? Now, in our country today, I could say that probably the thing that bothers me the most is the lack of justice. As it says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe unto them that say good is evil, and evil is good. And I think when we're done with the book of Acts, I want to just, it'd probably just be a couple sessions, but I want to talk about how do we react to a government that literally is doing what's evil. Our government today in the United States of America is rewarding evil, and they are punishing good. And if you don't know that, you haven't been watching a lot of stuff lately. Injustice is at an all-time high, but I'm going to tell you, it's not the first time. Think of this. Let me put this in perspective for you. <clears throat> Paul now has, acute, not accusers, would-be murderers. The first place they go, they go to the Supreme Court of the Jews to tell them their plan to make it work so literally Paul will be killed. Put it in perspective. You got a conspiracy group. They go to the Supreme Court to make sure they get clearance to kill somebody. 
Yikes. So we're not alone as being a system or a culture of injustice. That's about as wild as I can think of. And again, no, not even an accusation at this point. You, you see that in Claudius as he wrote, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but there's no accusation. He doesn't even know what the guy's guilty of. Like nothing? The Supreme Court, let's watch, let's unfold it. That's Sanhedrin, 71. Now notice though, these are not stupid people. If you want to get rid of Paul, you would go to the ones that would be arch enemies of him. The Sanhedrin is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, if you remember the last time we were together, the Pharisees actually counted Paul as a hero in the argument because they believe in the resurrection. They believe in the afterlife. And when Paul said, I'm a Pharisee, boom, the hammer dropped. It was this war, all on war with the Sadducees and Pharisees. So if you're one of the chief, I'm sorry, if you're one of the conspiracy, which group are you going to go to? You're going to go to the high priest because they're the Sadducees. Let's watch it happen. When they came to the chief priests and elders, that's the Sadducees, and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. Did you see how they sort of like God, grabbed God into this thing? Uh, you hear this, God told me to kill somebody. No, no, God's not part of that conversation, people. The God's not part of this conversation. Now, one of the things that I would wonder about, well, how did, obviously Paul wasn't killed if you read ahead, right? So what happened to these 40 clowns? Well, there's a little, there's a little law that they put in place that if you can't really absolutely perform the vow, it's okay. <laughs> but doesn't it sound good, though? Go home to the wife and kids. Well, I'm part of the 40, and we are not going to eat or drink until we kill that creep. Well, I didn't see anybody die. See, there's always a way to slither through. They use God's name when it was in their advantage. Makes it look like a bigger cause, right? That's actually what Paul did. And remember, we talked about that last week. Paul used God without really knowing where God was at. But let's keep going. Now, therefore, you with the council. In other words, not, see, they're approaching the right group. We want you guys, the Sanhedrin, to signify to the chief captain, that's Mr. Claudius Lysias, that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning. That means they want to get to the bottom of the story. They want more examination. Now, yesterday was a bad day for us. We had a little infighting. It's a Democrat-Republican thing. And yeah, we both lost, but let's try it again because we hate Paul. We all hate Paul. So let's, let's go get you guys the Supreme Court. You have the power. You tell Claudius to bring Mr. Paul down, and while he's coming down, we're going to take care of business. We don't care if he's guilty or not guilty. In fact, it goes on to say that we, or ever he come near, as soon as he comes near, we're going to be ready to kill him. That's the plan. That's the conspiracy. Now, you right now would wonder, how does verse 11 work? Didn't God say that he was going to go to Rome? Where's Paul with that? 100% on board. Trust completely, because God told him something, he can rest in that promise. Abraham, he believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. When you trust Christ as Savior, you receive grace. That's trusting God. That's faith that literally motivates and keeps you going. What's God going to do? This sounds like it's in action. See, there's a whole lot of things. Can you imagine knowing all the stuff that's going on in our country today? It would scare me to death. Just seeing the level of corruption and how deep it is. God, Jesus wept on at least one occasion. I think God's weeping today. 
to know a nation such as the United States that had such a heritage Christianized, a constitution that was written with such clarity, with such God, and it's not inspired, don't make, it's not on the same level as the Bible, but when you take a look at a country of all generations, all ages that we know of, that constitution, my friends, rises to the top. It's fantastic. When even you have bad leadership, it is still there to, to show you the direction, the course to clean it up. It's fantastic. Paul, does he know anything about this right now? I think he's just, just carefree. God said, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to Rome. How's God going to handle this? Well, a miracle would be to take those 40 guys and go poof, right? But you know what I think? There'd be 40 more. Right? They're rabid. So enter the most unlikely source of shutting this thing down. A kid. <laughs> One kid. Paul's nephew kind of kid. Now this is, I wish I could tell you more about Paul's sister or Paul's nephew. This is the one and only. It's just like they come. Now I do want to show you how much it would appear to be that Paul has lost his family after becoming a Christian. He was born what? Paul was born a Pharisee. He's like a life, a lifer of Pharisees. His father was a Pharisee. When he broke rank and he went to be a Christian, I don't think that was popular. It's the same in many cults. That's how they hold you, is excommunication. You leave and you're done. Your family's done, all of that. See, I think the same thing kind of happened. Let's take a, I can show you a verse. Let's see if it fits. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 3, and let's take a look. I hope I'm right. Philippians 3, 8. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Philippians 3. Now, he's, he's, on a, he's, he's using himself as an example to the F church at Philippi. But he says this, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's number one. That's what I really... For whom I have suffered the loss of some things? All things. There's a lot of people, myself included, that a good share of his family would have stepped away as well. He would have lost his family by taking a stand for Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to counter that with a couple of things that probably happened after him coming to Christ. There's a word called kinsman, and you know what it is from the Old Testament in the book of Ruth, that the kinsman could redeem, that's family is what it means, okay? Now, it doesn't have to, but let's go to Romans chapter 16, and let's see that probably due to Paul's influence to his witness, not only, can you imagine being a family member at Thanksgiving? And the family said, Paul, don't you say anything. He's that guy. Can you imagine him? Hey, let's thank the Lord for Jesus Christ today. Let's thank him for providing Messiah. No, Paul, no, enough already. Do you, do you think he'd back off? He's been standing in front of thousands that want to kill him, and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. How would you like to be Paul's family? <laughs> You're going to get a gospel every single time, right? Okay, let's go to uh, Romans chapter 16. He's making his farewells. I, there's almost greetings and farewells, but in verse 7, of chapter 16, it says this, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. Ooh, down to verse 11. Salute, oh, I may have got that. Oh, there it is. Salute Herodian, my kinsmen. Could those actually be some of Paul's relatives? It, and it says they're in Christ. They're in him, those. That's interesting. Now, I can't make the statement exactly because it could be companions as well. But the point of the matter is for him to use the word kinsmen tells me that they may be his family. How would you like to be a family of Paul and weren't a Christian? Whoa, every single time, right? 
But the point of the matter is, is we have this one instance. Let's go back to Acts chapter 23. And we find Paul's nephew, it says in verse 16, when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying away, heard of their ambush. Now, part of me, part of you wants to know, how did this kid get tuned into this? Again, we don't know the status of he. We know he's young. We'll find that in a moment. We don't know the status of Paul's sister. We don't know that. She probably is not a Christian. Or the Sanhedrin. Remember, Paul was in the Sanhedrin, right? He told them last time we met, last week, brethren. He was part of that group. So now we know that wives visit. And that didn't go off quite as well as I thought it might. So she might have been a wife of a Pharisee. Or in my case, I got to believe she, Pharisee, it's not a Sadducee line of thinking, right? So she probably knows the wives of other Pharisees, right? And she maybe sends little Johnny down to get a closer listen. Somewhere they're involved. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not like it's somebody just randomly out there in Jerusalem. It's tighter than that because you think they're broadcasting this? Not a chance. And yet he was close enough to be able to see in the full conspiracy as it's blown up. What does he do? Now this again, you talk about where would little Johnny normally go? Home. Where does he go first? To Uncle Paul. Goes right on into the fort, which means it's not quite as captive as you'd think. He can visit prisoners. He goes right on into Uncle Paul. (laughs) This is a miracle. This is a miracle in itself. So he goes, let's keep reading. When Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, their ambush, their conspiracy, he went and entered into the castle or the fortress and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, who's a centurion? That would probably be the one, a leader of a hundred men. Now, Claudius, Elysius was the, was the captain of a thousand men. These centurions would have been underneath Claudius. So he says to one of the centurions, of which probably that centurion would have been in charge of Paul's imprisonment right now, okay? He calls for that guy. He says, bring this young man. Notice he doesn't say nephew. <laughs> that was, I think that's pretty clear, right? Let's not make the relative connection here. He says, take him to the chief captain. That's Claudius Lysias. For he hath a certain thing to tell him. Doesn't tell him what it is. He says, you just take this. Now, Paul can't, of course. He says, Mr. Centurion, you take this young man and you go to Claudius Lysias because he's got something to tell your boss. Okay. Now, the other thing I want you to know, which is still must be just simmering through this fortress, is the fact they have found out that Paul is a Roman citizen, and they just about beat him. They just about scourged him. That, my friends, is bigger than you can imagine. And there's a lot of respect that is shown to Paul because of that in the Roman. In fact, more than it is from his family, the Jews. So he took him, verse 18, and brought him to the chief captain. And said, Paul the prisoner, that's what he's going to be known from here all the way out to the end of his life, honestly, Paul the prisoner, called me unto him and prayed me, asked me to bring this young man unto you who hath something to say unto thee. Um, there is something that I'd like you to, this is just a bit of a little aside, just a princess, but it just popped, it's dinging in my head. When Paul himself describes himself as a prisoner, you know how he describes himself as a prisoner in his own writings? 
prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not see himself as a prisoner of the state. He does not see himself as a prisoner of the Jews. He does not see himself as a prisoner of anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ or God himself. What is that telling us? That Paul doesn't worry about his future at all. He's not, nothing has been taken out. Providence of God has kept him and he's perfectly comfortable in being a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, stating the sense of the big picture that Paul really had. Okay, so what's, what's, what does our chief captain do? Verse 19. Then the chief captain took him by the hand. Uh, you probably don't do that to 25-year-olds. Right? <laughs> Come here, little boy. Do you see the magnificence of the providence now? God, now, you watch what this little boy says. And part of it would have been, too, if you have been told by your uncle... You go with this guy, the centurion, which you probably don't know. He's going to take you to the big wig that lives in the fortress. And you need to tell him exactly what you just told me. I'm getting from that that this kid is probably less than 12 years old. And I'm just making that up right now. But you don't lead anybody older than that by the hand, right? When's the last time, Paul, you got led by the hand? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, 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 let's just leave that lay. My wife? <laughs> right, let's leave that lay. It, it actually defeats, it defeats my question. Let's leave that lay. Uh, but seriously, all aside, there would have been a part of this young boy that would have been fearful as well. Would you not think? This is, this is, this is a thousand riot police living in that, and you're talking to the head man. There would have been a sense of fear. But you know what? Claudius Lysias wants to get to the bottom of this. Anytime somebody wants to talk about Paul, I want to know about Paul. Because he, he still doesn't have an accusation. He's got this guy's holding. He's like, this is stupid. We've had three riots, and I don't even have anything to charge this guy with. Which isn't cool, because he's a Roman citizen. And he leads this little boy somewhere where it's private. Calm him down. And he says, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, verse 20, he replays the conspiracy. The Jews have agreed to desire you that thou wouldest bring Paul down tomorrow onto the council, to the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin, as though they would want or inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. They want to know more about it. They're going to examine him more clearly so we can get to the bottom of this. See, that's a nice play. That should work on Claudius because he, would somebody please tell me what's going on here? Sounds like a great plan, see, especially coming to the Supreme Court. They have the authority to go to Claudius and say, we want another meeting with this guy. We want to get to the bottom of this and give you, the, the, the one that runs, runs his city, basically, a reason to have him put away. So let's just do that. Makes perfect sense. Now watch this. This, this part, I haven't underlined my Bible because it is so bold. It is so providential. It is so God. So far, everyone you'll see in this entire story from verses 12 to 35, this is the youngest, the least authoritative, that makes an authoritative, dictative statement. He is talking now to the guy that runs the city and says this. But do not you yield unto them. <laughs> Here's this little guy, and he says, Claudius, don't you do it. That is under providence. <laughs> for there lie in wait for him for more than 40 men, which have bound themselves with an oath, that they will neither eat or drink till they have killed him, and now are they ready, looking for a promise from you. See, you, Mr. Claudius, knows now what's taken place. Okay, so the chief captain then let the young man depart and charge him. He told him, 
don't tell anyone what you've shown me. Well, why is that important? Well, so far, guess who knows about the plot? The 40, and at least the Sadducees, I, it, we'll find it convincingly that they had another, if it's informal and whatever it is, but the council wanted to. In fact, he's already stated it. Did you see the young boy? Let's go back. Let's, let's backtrack. I'm actually behind. Story's ahead of me. Let's go back. He says the Jews, verse 20, the Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou, and see, it's already been, it's already been agreed upon. The Sanhedrin has already agreed. They're, already, they're in. They're already in. What will Claudius do? What's he going to do? What would you do? Slip into his boots for a second. Is this thing getting messier all the time? But he's on the upside. The Jews don't know he knows now. What are you going to do if you're Claudius? Now, Claudius shows an extreme amount of wisdom right here. He has a prisoner he doesn't know what he's charged with. He has a prisoner that three times they've tried to kill him. Three times you've rescued him. You have no idea why. You know he is a Roman citizen. That is the glaring elephant in the room. If anything happens to a Roman citizen under my watch, I'm as good as dead. So what are you going to do? Here's this little kid that comes and tells you this conspiracy, and he puts his little finger in my chest and says, don't you let that happen because there's 40 guys that are wanting to kill him. Claudius uses his brain, and he says, I better take care of this situation, and it's actually going to work out really good for me, because guess what? If I can get him out of my town into somebody else's town and under somebody else's jurisdiction, whew, I'm relieved. Now, he's got one problem. You really shouldn't send him anywhere unless you have a reason to send him somewhere. Now, it's really interesting. You unfold his letter. The reason he sent them to Felix is bizarre if you're a Roman commander, but let's go. He is on it right away. Now, this is, keep, keep your timeline. We had the riot amongst the Sanhedrin. That night, Jesus Christ comes to Paul and tells him, cheer up, good job, you're going to Rome. The next morning, the conspiracy unfolds. The young man hears of it, goes to Mr. Lysias, and Mr. Lysias is going to do something very, very quickly. Now, as government rolls, you know it's very slow. The wheels of justice is amazing. It's so slow, right? This guy is going to make split-second decisions. He has a man that's going to be killed as soon as they come. Now, they're probably on their way, honestly. Uh, Claudius, we need that guy down there so we can figure out what's really going on here, so that you know what's really going on here. That hadn't happened, and he doesn't want it to happen. The last thing he wants is to have some sense of interaction with these guys, because then he's in a crossfire. So he calls the centurions, two of them, watch this, talk about quick action. The captain then, he let him go, verse 23, he called unto him two centurions. These are two guys that lead 100 men saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. Whoa, okay, Laramie, pop up that other, pop up our map. Let's see what he's got. What's his plan? He's, oh, this is great. This is great. Um, so Claudius says, here's the plan. I want you guys, leaders of 200 men. I can never figure out which end this thing was. There we go. Um, so where are they at? They're in Jerusalem, okay? He's talking about Caesarea. Now, how far is it from Jerusalem to Caesarea? So we're going to think about maps. They can really be big. and It's about 65 miles, okay? Keep that in mind now, 65 miles. Let's get a picture of that. We're sitting here. What's 65 miles from Sheridan? We can go with Butte, can't we? Okay, Butte. 
he says, I want you guys, he's talking to the first two centurions, we want 200 men. Now, these would be the, these would be the heavy artillery. These would be sword and shield bearers. These would be the ones to lead the charge. These are the ones that would lead the way. In, in any sense of regiment, that's who, what they would have, is these two, two centurions. So they're going to go to Caesarea, is what he's saying. Let's keep going. That's not all he wants. Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, three score and ten. Let's put it in English, 70. 70 horsemen. These are going to be 70 guys that are, that are riding horses plus the 200. It's, he's not done. And spearmen, 200, at the third hour of the night. Okay, let's break this all down. Now, spearmen is probably more logical that they were javelin throwers. In the Greek, you back it up, and it's not just a, it would be a javelin thrower. They sometimes, in formation would be behind. If anybody came from the back, they would be the first source of a light artillery that would take those guys out. The horsemen would have even actually been behind them. They would be riding in the, in the back end of it. How many men do you have right now? 470. How many are in that, whoops, in the, in the, in the fortress? 1,000. So he is, he is willing to take 470 men to take one man to Caesarea. Now, I don't know what the population is in Sheridan. Is it 800? No. 700. No. My, 600. Yeah. Okay. Going, going, going gone, right? So let's get this right. This is my point, actually. Smaller is better. So two-thirds of the population of Sheridan is going to take one man 65 miles to make sure he gets there. hi yi yi Is this crazy? No, this is Claudius, and he doesn't want any more screw-ups. He needs to get that guy out of his camp to someone else that can handle this problem. And he doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. He wants no interruptions. He wants this handled. Now, see how God is caring for him now? Watch. If you're thinking 65 miles, what, how's Paul going to get there? He gets his own horse. Watch it. <laughs> And provide them beasts, that's horses, that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. That's your job, guys. 470 guys. You go to Felix. He's in Caesarea. He wrote a letter after this manner. This is his letter. Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor, Felix. That was a lie. He's not an excellent man. We'll talk about him next week. Felix is a jerk. This man was taken, let's see if he's, he, he used to sometimes people in power will maybe massage it, maybe pat it just a tick. Now you remember, let's talk about this before we get there. How did Mr. Lysias find out that Paul was a Roman citizen? You have to go back and you review for a moment. How did you find that out? He was stretching him out to get it ready to scourge him. He's ready to punish this guy. That's what happened. And then when the guy comes back and says, this guy's a Roman citizen. Do you know that? Whoa, 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 stop. You're a Roman citizen? Yeah, I was born that way. Oh, my goodness. I even had to pay for mine. So you see, that's how it happened. Let's watch how that unfolds. He says to Felix, this man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. They tried to kill him. Then came I with an army. Here I go, rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Oh, there was a little padding there, wasn't it? In other words, we just reached in and swooped him out knowing he was a Roman. No, that is not the way it went. But he found out, but he didn't share how he found out. That's okay. When I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, brought him before the Sanhedrin, these people, 
whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law. That's what I thought. Paul's probably got something in their own law, so I brought those guys in. But have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait or ambush for the man, I went straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Now, you have to dig in a little bit. Why did Claudius Lysias send him to Felix? What, what reason? For Paul's safety. That's crazy. You don't get a Roman to care about taking 470 men for one solitary Jew to go to a place of safety and not having any accusation. But you see what it did? It took him off the hook, not even needing an accusation, because this guy, we've got to protect his life, and he is a Roman citizen. Felix, I'm sending him to you for his safety. And he could have said, and for mine. There was never a happier man in Jerusalem to get rid of Paul than Mr. Claudius Lysias. He was tickled to death. Then the soldiers, verse 31, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by... Oh, we forgot one thing. We forgot one thing. Stop for a moment. We got 470 men. It was the next day after Jesus appeared to Paul and said, I'm going to take you to Rome. The conspiracy is unfolded. He gets his two centurions, and you read it in verse, uh, verse 23. It says, at the third hour of the night. Tell me what time that is. That's 9 o'clock p.m. That's a pretty good time if you want to kind of get out of town under the veil of darkness. That's what he wants, too. He's not waiting till the next morning. He's, he says, you guys get gone. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you next, and it's a little bit of a giveaway, but if you were going to... Well, it tells us that, uh, and I never pronounce it right. I listen to it, and they pronounce it for me. Um, Antipatris, I think is the way it is. Antipatris. There's two different pronunciations. That one's close. So he's, he's starting in Jerusalem. It's 9 o'clock in the evening. Okay? He wants to get as far away from home as possible, Jerusalem. He's headed to Caesarea at 60 miles, 65 miles, 60, 65. He ends up at Antipatris. How many miles is that? About 35 miles. Now, just for a second, understand how hard these guys marched. They say that an army marching at full speed can get about three and a half miles an hour. I'm going to tell you something right now, buddy. I don't want to go 35 miles in one night. That is from here to Virginia City. I'm sorry, from here to Ennis without a hill, okay? Oh, but it was kind of downhill, but it's not like climbing it. But how would you like to walk to Ennis tonight? You can start at 9 o'clock, be there the next morning. You guys aren't even being fair. You're not even nodding your head. I see the shock. When's the last time you're, you actually walked 35 miles in two days? Or th right? Are you there? These guys are in shape. And I'm telling you, Claudius can't. How, coming back to the barracks, the centurions. Hey, guys, we just got some orders from our guy. We got it from, from Claudius. He wants us to leave. Like, get ready. We're going to leave at 9 o'clock tonight, and we're going to Antipatris. That's 35 miles. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's even better. Let's keep reading. Then the soldiers that were commanded them took Paul, brought him by night to Ant Antipatris. Okay? And he's just so matter-of-factly. I'm going to tell you, 35 miles with a pack and a gear. Now, the guys on horses had it made. Who else had it made? Paul. He had a horse. Is God taking care of him right now? That's what providence is. He takes care of his children. 
those guys, those guys, I gotta believe there's a little bit of a whew. And then the commander says to you, the centurion, all right, back home right now, because guess what's happened? Oh, I, I see, I want, two, I want two maps on the board, because guess what's happening at home? We don't have a thousand men there anymore. And we still got Jews that are really mad. We've only got 530. So get back home immediately so we have our full regiment. The 70 horsemen, they're gonna continue the journey. How would you like to be the group that's walking another 35 miles to get back home? You've done 70 miles in probably a little more than 24 hours. You're like, oh my goodness, right? And when we think we got it rough, walking from here to Butte with a break, what's halfway between here and Butte? Nothing. Okay, I got it. What is it? What would it be? Doesn't matter. The mountain. <laughs> the mountain. That's a good place to park, right? And then when you get there, turn around and go back home. Are you, are you guys getting this? This is providence. The guys want to do this. That's right. It was actually worse. Because from Jerusalem, it says, you know, down. Everything's down from Jerusalem. Now, at this point, once you get to Antipatris, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this city in a moment. But that would really be almost on the bottom of the plain. And you can tell Caesarea is on the coast. That was actually a man-made coast. There's a whole lot of things we can tell you about this. But keeping in mind, the return trip would have been harder. And they wanted to do it. <laughs> That's a miracle. Now, you may say not every one of them wanted to do it. I'll tell you what, though. They knew if they didn't do it that the man that wanted to do it was bigger than they were. Is God working? It's amazing. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him. They left the 70 with Paul to go on, and they returned back to the castle or to the fortress, who, when they came to Caesarea, these are the 70 with Paul, and delivered the epistle, that's the letter, to the governor, that's Felix, he presented Paul also before him. He's, in other words, these 70 are delivering the, the prisoner and the document or the letter. When the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. When he understood that he was a Cilicia, wait a minute, why would he do that? Our map doesn't show it here, but why would he do that? Why would he ask Paul? I mean, that's the first question out of your mouth? Yes, it is. Because he would have only had jurisdiction over Judea and Cilicia. If he would have come from another province, he would have said, can't do that. You've got to go to, to Mr. XYZ, okay? But guess what? This was the perfect place. Felix can handle Cilician problems, okay? He says this, well, okay, I will hear you when your accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Now, that sounds a little bit tough, doesn't it, judgment, the Herod's judgment hall? And that, that doesn't sound nice. That sounds like a jail, a big time. It's not. In fact, the other word is praetorium. You know what? Oh, we should, we should back up for a moment. Antipatris, let's talk about this city for a little bit, Antipatris. It was actually a city that was founded by Herod, the king. And he named it after his father, which was Herod Antipor. So he names it Antipatris. That's a place, and it's no longer there. There's, another, there's a Muslim community there now that actually takes it, but it's, it's, it's gone. It was short-lived, if you will. Earthquake really demolished it. But it was, it was a place of a stop-off. It was something that Herod was much involved in. But Caesarea, that is a Gentile city. There's a lot of stuff happens in Caesarea. Um, in fact, there was an aqueduct of which, now Herod was big time in, in creating that one as well. This was a Roman outpost of which Herod the king, from that whole Herod family, created this city. And it was one that was highly thought of. That's where Pilate lived. 
Okay, that's where Felix lives. And what, getting back to my story, do you know where Paul's going to be hanging out for what? Now we're going to find you won't find out for a couple of chapters. For two years he lives in. Are you ready? Felix's house. Is God taking care of him right now? He's got him on a horse. They've traveled 70 miles. He is no worse for the wear. And then his place of imprisonment is in the governor's house. I think God's in charge. <laughs> what do you think Paul is thinking right now? And you haven't heard a word out of him, have you? Not one single word have you heard out of him. The only thing that you've seen is, I don't know, Johnny or Billy or Peter or whatever it is. He says, you know, you need to go tell that story to that guy. Hey, Mr. Centurion, this young man needs to go to your boss. That's it. Paul's not quaking in his boots. Oh, what's going to happen? There's 40 guys going to take. God has promised him that he would go to Rome. This is how we get started. We're going to go 65 miles. Now, what he didn't see is he's actually going to live in this city for two years. See, that's for us. The providence journey that God's brought you through, you maybe would have done it differently. But it's God's plan, and I want God's plan. You know what? Paul wanted God's plan. He was all about it. He was all about it. Caesarea, they actually uh, would have had an aqueduct that would have come 10 miles northeast of where the water came into that city. You see, we sometimes think we have such a corner on all of the infrastructure. Not so much. Caesarea was, would have been an outpost. In fact, this, as you can tell, it didn't even, well, you can't tell from the map, but Caesarea was when they actually made a man-made in the sense of a, um, not a beach, what am I trying to say? A harbor. There we go. It was a man-made harbor. There were rocks like, I mean, I think that's exactly like 90 by 50 by 10. Massive rocks. And they would drop them 20 fathoms. And they created their own harbor. It took 10 to 12 years. Got it? 10 to 12 years to form this harbor. That's how absolutely serious that Mr. Herod wasn't building that. And guess who he names it after? Caesar Augustus. That's the way to get points. Hey, Caesar, you won't believe what I built for you, buddy. And in return, what does he get? A little more power. Isn't that how it works in America? Doesn't it work around the world that way? Always does, doesn't it? Power corrupts. Let's go and uh, I think the two things that we need to write down from this is the fact... Now, again, miracles are cool, but I think providence is even cooler. Because when you take a look and you go backwards and you see how God has led you to where you're at, because our group here isn't just a weird one out in the way we're able to travel now across the world. This is common of how God is using you and your life to infiltrate and, and integrate into other people's lives to accomplish his will. When he's speaking, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in your heart, your head, whatever it is, he wants you to do something. He wants you to do something. That young little boy, that, that nephew, you know what? Was God speaking to him? Just pull him out of the picture for a second. Just take him out of the picture. Guess what? It all breaks down. It all breaks down. You pull Claudius out of the picture. Him not, oh, you're eight. I'm making, I don't know that, but he's led him by the hand. You're, you're 10. What do you know? I can't trust you. Take him out of the picture, what happens? They're not going. Take the centurions. This is crazy. I'm not leaving at 9 o'clock. I'm not walking my men. That's not good for those guys. Right? Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? 
All of those can be broken down. That's why I think providence is even more miraculous than a miracle, because a miracle is this. God reaches down and breaks the natural and just goes, poof. No, no, this is bigger. This is bigger. Paul is in, he's in great position. So let's look at, there's two things I guess I said that already. Let's erase this. I mean, who would think in the morning that someone, 470 people, would take this guy that's a prisoner in barracks to go to Antipatris and ultimately to Caesarea? That's a zero. That's a zero. But God had said it. And you know what we can say about God? Just as he was in Paul's life, he's the same for us. God is faithful. Faithful. There's people today that say he's not coming back. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. We'll look at several of them, but this is, God, God's got a plan. He's outside of time. He doesn't need us to follow our timeline. Verse 8 and 9, chapter 3, 2 Peter. But beloved, Peter is reaching out to those that he's writing to, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You're not going to put God in a timeline, but watch, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He's faithful, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You think about that. All of the time that's went past, and you know what God did? Literally, the reason He hasn't ended this before, and I want, to, I want to go home. And if you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ, you want to go home. You want to take your family. You know what I mean? You want, let's get there. You know why God's waiting? Because he wants everyone to come to repentance. He is faithfully waiting. But that promise is no less sure than if, right? It's faithful. Let's look at another one. As you're walking through this life, let's show what else he's faithful on. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is a verse that you need to have a hold of, especially young people. This is, this is a big deal. You get, your, you get yourself in a spot. You don't know how to get out. This is a promise. If you're, if you're Christ, if you're one of His, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Now, it usually starts, we get in trouble because of verse 12. Have you noticed this? Uh, Wherefore, in other words, pay attention, let him that thinketh he standeth taketh heed lest fall. What does that mean? When pride goes, you fall fast. Pride get us, gets us in a spot we're in trouble. But look at verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. Who will suffer you to be able to be, will not suffer you, will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That doesn't mean that you're going to take it. Sometimes after I've fallen, temptation comes, you fall. It's amazing how I can turn around and say, ah, there was my escape route. That's where I should have got off. That's from God. He allows every time with a temptation to one of his a place to get off. He's faithful. He said Paul was going to go to Rome. He's faithful. There was 40 guys who want to kill him. He said, watch this. I, I, I love this. Now, when I say watch this, it's usually bad things happen, right? <laughs> what happens if you put, right, all of that? When God says, watch this, it's cool to watch. <laughs> watch this. There's 40 guys. And, I mean, the whole town, you can feel the undercurrent of the political situation. We're going to finally get rid of this clown. Enter a 10-year-old kid. Dun, 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 dun. Mr. Claudius, this is what they're going to do, and don't you do it. <laughs> God's in charge, totally in charge. Let's take a look at um, 
The next one, God is not only faithful, He cares. He cares. Sometimes we don't see it right away. But if you're, oh, I went back to 1 Corinthians. Let's go back to 1 Peter. You were in 2 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, it's amazing how Peter, what would you say prior to, as you um, stop for just a second, what would you say was Peter's biggest problem? And I'm talking about going through the Gospels. He's walking and talking with Jesus Christ. Three years. What would you say Peter's biggest problem is? His foot is way bigger than it should be because it fits, does not fit in the mouth. Right? His mouth is just going. You know what's behind that? Let's take a couple of those. Jesus says, I'll tell you what, tonight, guys, this was, this was at the last time they're together, communing the last time, fellowship, last time he said, guys, tonight you guys are going to just run away. You're going to scatter. And Peter just stands up and says, no way. I am with you to the end. And Jesus looked at, now what would have been the best thing to say? Nothing. <laughs> right? Peter, Jesus looked at Peter and he says, Peter, just as a matter of fact, in your life, before the cock crows twice, you will have denied me three times. And Peter loses it. No way! I'm there! Right? And guess what? That's what happened. What would you have to say about Peter? His biggest problem, his biggest challenge was pride. And it's amazing how sneaky it is in our lives. Pride doesn't have to be announced to be present. It can be in so many different ways. Just how we act, how we portray ourselves, how we move. There's people that say, I'm a self-made man. <laughs> uh, why don't you work on the next breath you're drawing? Right? And look how Peter does it. Remember what we just read now in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, right? We talked about the sense of falling, that God is in charge. Now, let's take a look now at this one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's start in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, which I didn't do before Jesus was killed, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That verse there, you should have, just live it. There's something bugging you? I want to go to him first. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You're praying about everything. And when you see the providence of God, these two things just remarkably stick out. Let's look at another, another verse. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And Hebrews is a very deep, deep theological book. There's a lot of stuff. It's, it's, we're never going to mind the depths of it. Today we looked at a passage that's mostly narrative, and yet you can see how God is faithful and he cares. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Let's look at a couple verses here. Verses 5 and 6. This is one, uh, one that I left with a person that I've been texting back and forth, going through a really difficult time. Really difficult time. Horribly difficult time. Actually, bitterness now has welled up within this person. And bitterness is a horrible thing because it's like you taking the poison and you're expecting the other person to die. Okay? It's a terrible thing. I heard one. It's, it's kind of funny, but it's not because it's really true. Um, Adrian Rogers, which have you heard of him? He's actually passed away, but uh, let's see. Love That Matters, I think is the name of his ministry. Still going. And uh, anyway, I was listening to a, a message of his about bitterness, and he said this. Bitterness is a lot like a porcupine. That person has a lot of points, hard to be around. <laughs> isn't that good? That's exactly true, isn't it? Bitterness changes you from the inside. Not for better, for worse. Bitterness will grab you. It comes off of prolonged anger. It will literally destroy you from the inside out. 
But one of the things I shared with this person was the fact, just look at this, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, and it says, let your conversation be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he has said, this is the, this is the key, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know what? Uh, my, my word providence has gone off the board. Do you know what? Never happened to Paul. He never left him. Never forsook him. But look at verse 6. So that we may boldly say, because of that, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. If that is not a picture of what Paul has really lived now in Acts chapter 23, and we'll find in chapter 24, I don't know what is. Whew. That's all I got. Questions or comments? That is, that is such a cool passage of Scripture. God's not mentioned, and He's everywhere. He's, he's in your life as well. Every single moment, He's not going anywhere. If you've trusted Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ today, this moment, do that. Take advantage of that. He is available 24-7. Can you imagine the universe creator, the universe provider, the one that keeps everything in place? If Jesus Christ stopped keeping those atoms in place, the whole place would blow up. That guy. And guess what? It's not like going to a doctor and waiting in the room. You get to call on him any time of the day, night, or whatever. You got a problem? Talk to him. You don't have a problem? Talk to him. And he's the one that made the rules. <laughs> I don't know how it gets any better. You guys don't seem quite as fired up as I am, but anyway, it's, it's okay. I, I love this. I mean, I, I, I want to keep saying it. Miracle of Providence. Providence to me is so fantastic. And the more that you analyze your, even your life and you see how God just took you through that. It's truly a miracle. Paul, he's going to stick around Caesarea for two years. He's going to be living in Felix's castle, his house, his mansion, the praetorium. And I'm like, isn't that wonderful? And he's not a prisoner of his. See, that's what I love about Paul. It's all about how you position yourself. No, I'm, I'm not a servant of Felix. I'm not a prisoner of his. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could it be any better? How could it be? Okay, questions or comments? We're going to shut it down. How old is Paul about this thing? Is it just 50 or how old is the man in the age? I hadn't really thought about it. Um, see, it would have been uh, Jesus Christ, 30 to 38, 3 AD, would have been crucified. The church started you know, 50 days after that, after he was resurrected. Um, the church began, Stephen was pretty early on because that persecution is what blew the, you know, blew the disciples out and about the world. Um, so this is probably 61 AD, if I was going to pick for this date to happen. So, you know, he's probably 25 to 30 years older than he was when he was sitting at the side of, of Stephen holding coats so they could get a better swing at Stephen, right? So I think there's, a, I think 50, 50 or 60 probably. I mean, I don't know exactly. Because you can tell Paul was zealous from his get-go. He was just on fire. But my, I, would, I would have to say probably at least 50, though. Yeah. But I, I'm not, I, can't, I can't make it. Go ahead. Well, how long would he have studied with Gamaliel? Again, we don't know that for sure. Um, but just think about, just think about a, uh, what would be the right word? Uh, if you're at a university, you would have a, Oh, what's the right word? Doctorate? Doctorate? I guess I was thinking they were around 30 when they were done their studies when they were actually taking a position themselves. Yeah, and I, and I can't, can't rule that out. Uh, the thing that would be interesting about Paul is the fact that his father was a Pharisee. So he may have got an inner kind of an early start with someone like Gamaliel. It, you know, it was positioning. Because that's the other thing you have to think about Gamaliel. You don't just get to study under Gamaliel. 
You know, I mean, that would be a huge list. But it would seem like when, the, when Paul is saying this, it would have been fairly early on. And I, I can't, I can't, miss, but no more than 60 at this point. But anyway, he, he's, he's well, he should be slowing down a little bit, right? And here is no slow up in this guy at all. He is gung-ho, go get him, sick him every single day. He changed from killing Christians to promoting Christ. And that's what made him so mad. Now, that's, that's the other thing. Let, let's come back to something else. This is what's happening in our country as well. Uh, it's not about people. Okay? You know, it's easier for us to, put, to, to see a person that is literally working for Satan, acting as a tool of Satan. You take those 40-plus guys. from Just take those. Now, they are vehemently angered by Paul. And they have taken an oath. They say, we are going to kill that guy or we're not going to eat and drink. Okay? Whose servants are they? How about the Supreme Court? They go to the Sadducees and they say, we want you to be part of our myrtle, myrtle, murder plot. <laughs> Couldn't get it out. What are they? They're instruments of Satan. Why? What did he do? Because Satan has... Well, in fact, here's the verse. Just popped my head. Let's go to uh, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It's just like it is today. There are cults being led. There are, there are systems. There are societies that are literally trying to destroy everything that God is. This is it. There's Satan's tools. There's Satan's dupes. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, verse 3, it says, But our gospel be hid. It is hid to them that are lost. How? In whom the God of this world. Who's that? Satan in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Okay? Think of those Sadducees, those high priests. you know how much they want to believe in Jesus Christ? Zero. And every time they say no, it just gets harder and harder. Look at Pharaoh. He's probably, to me, is the prime example. If you dive in and you look like, a, I don't know exactly what it's like, plague five or six, it says God hardened his heart. And that bothered me. But don't start there. Go back to the first. It says he hardened his heart. And when you harden your heart against God, you are in a very, very dangerous position. Because at some point, I don't know where it is, but when you've hardened your heart far enough, it's calloused and you're gone. These, these high priests, these Sadducees right here, they're in a very, very difficult position. I'm not going to say none of them got saved, but I would say the chances were really slim. Let's look at this when Jesus even said. One more verse. No, we'll stop. Promise. Promise. Ooh, that's a big promise, isn't it? Let's go, let's go the day that literally Jesus, he has just had his triumphal entry. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Now, he's standing over Jerusalem. He's, he's looking over Jerusalem. And he says this, O Jerusalem, this is chapter 23, verse 37. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you the verse. Matthew 23, verse 37. This is Jesus' words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's the same place, right? Whoops, not here, but that's where they're meeting. That's where the temple is. That's where Paul's going to be killed or wanted to be killed. The same place that thou, read it, killest the prophets. And stonest them which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. I think of that, that picture, that analogy that Jesus uses of it. You know, you know, like in a barnyard and those, those old mother hens, you know, the clucks is what my mother always called them, the cluck, right? Okay. She is, she's calling to those chicks, and you know what they never do? They never disobey. When she calls, they come. Where does she do? She throws them right underneath her feathers, which are poofed out, and that's where they hide. That's where they live. That's where they're protected. And Jesus said, I've asked. God has asked you. We've sent prophets. I've sent people to protect you, and you would not. Now, let's watch. Let's keep watching. This is the condition they're still in. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. 
It's yours. For I say unto you, you shall not see me, this is Jesus, not see me henceforth till you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You know where that happens? The end of the tribulation. Those Jews finally, at the end of the tribulation, they see him who they pierced. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. You know what's happening in the meantime? They're on their own. Now that means no Jews are getting saved. Didn't say that. But it's a very small remnant that see, Messiah, see Jesus as their Messiah. That will continue. That will continue. Okay, I promised. So I have to keep a promise, right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your providence. Thank you, Father, that you can use miracles just as well. But you don't have to have notoriety. You don't have to have a show. The ones that want you to do a miracle usually, Father, don't even care if you did show them a miracle. But, Father, thank you for using providence. To me, honestly, as I look at my own life and I think of those around me, how you've protected them, how you've cared for them, and you were faithful. Father, thank you that you are always with us. You're not forsaking us. You're not leaving us behind. And we don't need to fear what men can do to us. Paul lived that. His, the example of his life was so magnificent, so on fire, to see this man so tenacious and so full of integrity because he trusted you. He knew he could trust you. And here you are the day after Jesus appeared to him. Literally, he begins his journey toward Rome. You were faithful and you protected him. Thank you for using that young man. Now, we don't know anything more about him, but obviously a young lad. And you made him the pinnacle part of the story, literally reaching out, hearing the plot, going to Paul first, his uncle, and then under Paul's direction, going to Claudius and declaring for him, to him, what the plot was. And then through your voice, literally saying, and don't do it. Thank you for all that you do in guiding us and directing us. Your providence is miraculous. Father, we're here today. We don't even know our needs for next week, but you do. You know our needs, just as it says in uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 30, that we, you know what we need. Father, these people here will need things. I need things. Thank you for knowing them and caring for us enough to be faithful to provide what we need. May we be content with what you've done and how you've prepared. These things we ask in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.